Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. Uh, Today we're going to talk about two subjects, or we're going to try to get to two subjects. The first one might take a little bit uh, longer time, so I'm not sure if we'll have time for the second one, but I'm going to try to talk about both this Texas bill that you've been hearing about. A ton of you have been asking me about this, um, about the Texas bill that supposedly bans teachers from teaching about uh, the KKK and Martin Luther King Jr. We're going to debunk that because it is truly one of the most egregious examples of propaganda that I've ever seen. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about, if we have time, what's going on with David Platt's church but um, and some of the pushback that he's getting, the allegations of David Platt and his leadership and his church apparently embracing CRT. But Mostly, we're going to talk about one of the uh, responses to that by David French and um, a little bit of my rebuttal to that. Before we get into all of it, though, I just want to give you guys some encouragement. I was thinking about this um, as I was driving in today. So for the past couple of weeks, my family has been going through a lot. Now, not really big things. They've been just small things that have kind of piled up a couple of weeks ago. You guys might remember I um, I was I was sick. Um, I ended up having some kind of infection. I actually had to go to the ER a couple weeks ago. I ended up being totally fine, but that kind of threw our family through a loop for one week. And then uh, both of my kids last week came down with RSV. First, it was my two-year-old, and then it was our baby. And then if it sounds like I'm still under the weather, I'm actually recovered, but both my husband and I um, also got colds. They were very minor cold, so it was fine. But then there were some other things that went on in our family that just added a whole lot of stress to us and threw us out of our normal routine. Um, And it can also be very scary when your kids get um, a cold. And RSV typically isn't that serious, but it can be serious. Our youngest is 12 weeks. And so you really have to watch that kind of thing, especially if they get into some kind of coughing fit. You just have to be super careful. And I am very careful in general. This is actually the first cold that my two-year-old has ever had. And so, and it lasted, they last um, about a week. Thankfully, thank the Lord, both of my kids fully recovered, totally fine. But in the midst of all of those things, like it can just be easy to get overwhelmed and to kind of wallow in the fear and anxiety that all of that um, brings on. And a lot of you might be dealing with some of the same things. Maybe you have a similar circumstance that you're in the middle of right now. Maybe you have a much bigger trial that you're dealing with, or maybe you've just got a lot of small things that seem to be piling up and you're feeling yourself get overwhelmed and wondering, why are things happening this way? Why can't things be better? And maybe you're starting to feel that kind of bitterness Um, and uh, that feeling that you are entitled to um, ease kind of start coming on and and building up uh, in your life and in your heart. And if you are in the midst of that, whether it's a big or small circumstance, I just want to encourage you to do something that may seem counterintuitive at first, and um, that is to think about how things could be worse. That's something that I do. That's an exercise that I do whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed and things seem like they're not going well. Uh, Think about how things could be worse because in the midst of that, doing that, you actually start to see how the Lord has given you particular mercies that maybe you didn't notice before. So 
for us, for example, the the way that I kind of found uh, that grace in the midst of the last couple of weeks, I thank the Lord for good health care. I thank the Lord for good doctors and nurses and for medicine that was able to uh, help me a couple of weeks ago, that was able to help my kids. I thank the Lord that because of COVID restrictions, um, at my husband's work, he was able to, he still works from home. And so he was able to have a flexible schedule that allowed us to uh, really, uh, really engage in a lot of teamwork in helping our kids. I think the Lord that uh, it was my oldest who got sick first. And so the worst of it for her was before the worst of it for the baby. And so we were able to allocate our energy toward each kid, how we were, uh, how we needed to. I thank the Lord that my husband and I really didn't get a cold until after our kids were already recovering. And so that allowed us to give the energy to them that we needed to, that so that we weren't completely down in the dumps. And I thank the Lord that both of them recovered, that we recovered, and that it was minor, especially compared to a lot of uh, kids, especially babies who get RSV. So thankful for all of that. Thankful for friends who sent us lunch, who checked in on us. Thankful for uh, parents who prayed for us and helped us however they could. Thankful for me for a job that I am able to, um, I'm kind of able to dictate my schedule for the most part. Last week, we had already pre-recorded Monday's episode. Tuesday, we didn't have a new episode. Wednesday, I was able to record from home. Then Thursday, because I really needed to, I came in and recorded a quick interview. But wow, thank the Lord that I had the flexibility to be able to do that kind of thing. And so I'm so incredibly grateful for all of the mercies that I saw um, in our lives over the past two weeks. And it would have been really easy to just sit in my fear and sit in my anxiety and allow kind of self-pity to overwhelm me. But the Lord calls us to something better. And it's not because he's just chastising us for having bad feelings because bad feelings are a part of life. And I'm not saying we should just shut those down and pretend that they don't exist and to tell ourselves to buck up and just be positive all the time. We do have to feel sadness and negative feelings. Um, that's part of being a, a human being, but we cannot allow those things to uh, to dictate us. We can't allow those things to rule us and to overcome us. God calls us to rejoice. He calls us to gratitude. And that is not some form of so-called toxic positivity. That's because he cares about us. He knows that joy and gratitude and recognizing his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy is actually better than being overwhelmed by our own feelings of misery, which may even be justified feelings. He still says in the worst fiery trial or in the smallest inconvenience that we are supposed to give him glory and to give him praise because he cares about us. And now listen, you might not be able to think right now of anything worse that could go on in your life. Like you might be listening to what we went through as a family over the past couple of weeks, and you might be thinking, Psh, I would pay to have problems that small. And maybe the problems that you are dealing with are so much bigger and so much more profound and so much more grave than the ones that I described. Maybe you are going through the darkest season of your life. And I will not even try to invalidate that or belittle that in any way. If you cannot think of how things could be worse, I absolutely believe you. What I am going to call you to and encourage you to is what the Lord encourages 
all Christians to, which is hope. So maybe you don't feel like you have any hope in this life right now and you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, at least in the the physical world. What God gives us, what the gospel gives us is if you, by grace through faith, believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have trusted him as the Lord of your life, again, uh, because of his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, in you, then you have the hope of one day everything that is wrong today being made right. You have the hope that one day he is going to wipe away all of your tears. You will never have any more sorrow. You will never have any other, any more feelings of despair. You will never be discouraged. You will never be disappointed again. You will never have to worry about injustice. You will never have to experience unfairness. There will never be anything bad or sadness inducing ever happen to you ever again. And you will be living in perfect peace and perfect joy forevermore in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ, when you die and or when Jesus comes back to rule in perfect peace and righteousness forever and ever. So even if nothing good seems to happen to you ever again in this life, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, the perfect righteous one died on the cross for your sins so that you, a sinner, could be reconciled to a holy God forever and spend forever in fellowship and in peace and in joy with him, in worship of him forever, that is enough to give us joy. That is enough to bring us to gratitude. So even if you can't find anything else in this life right now to rejoice over, rejoice over that. There is no better news in the gospel. There's no better news in the gospel, even if the only thing you've been hearing for the past month, the past year, the past decade is bad news. You have good news in the gospel. And I don't say that because I know what you're going through because I don't. I say that um, as someone who reads the word of the one who does know who are, who you are and what you're going through. He is the God who sees. He is the God who cares. He is the good shepherd that longs to give you rest, that longs to restore you, that longs to forgive you. If you do not know Jesus, I promise you that what you are trying and failing to find inside yourself, what you're trying and failing to find inside your boyfriend or your job or whatever endeavor it is, is found in Christ alone. That I guarantee you, there are a lot of things that I get wrong. There are a lot of mistakes that I make. There are a lot of things that I do not know. That is the one thing that I know for sure. So that was just on my heart. That was on my heart this morning as I was driving in. And I just wanted to give you that Monday um, Monday encouragement before we get into the, re- the rest of this uh, new stuff, which I know in itself can be stressful. I wanted to make sure that we started um, this week off on the right foot. So whoever that was for, I hope that that, um, I hope that encourages you in the Lord. All right. We're going to get into some of this new stuff that you've been asking me about though. Uh, before we do, let me tell you about one of my favorite sponsors and that is Annie's Kit Clubs. So Annie's Kit Clubs have the perfect subscription boxes for both boys and girls that will keep them creative, constructive, uh, engaged at the kitchen table. I know I hear from a lot of you guys that 
that it's difficult right now as you're trying to make sure that your kids are entertained, that they're still learning, that they're still um, spending their time in a way that is productive and um, and engaging and educational rather than just allowing them to, you know, watch TV or sit on their iPad all day. You want them to do something that is productive. And if it's 100 degrees where you are, you can't just let them play outside all day. Annie's Kit Clubs is a really, really great option for you. Uh, they have a Young Woodworkers Kit Club, which is a monthly subscription that sends kids real hammer and nails construction kits. They even include real tools, starting with a kid-sized hammer. Your kids can build complete kits with minimal supervision. For a variety of projects, Annie's Creative Girls Club can introduce your girl to new crafts with every shipment. Each month, she'll receive two fun kits, complete with easy-to-follow instructions, kickstart her creativity through painting, beading, and more. Your kids can master new hands-on skills while expressing their creativity. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. Save 75% off your first shipment. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie for 75% off your first shipment. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. All right, let's get into this first story. Um, like I said, we're going to talk about this Texas education bill that you have been hearing uh, bans teachers teaching about the KKK and Martin Luther King and slavery and apparently is emblematic of just how racist Republican states are. Um, and then also, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to try to talk about what's going on with David Platt's church. But First, this Texas bill. Um, a ton of you have been sending me posts on Instagram about this bill, SB3, Senate Bill 3, uh, that claim the bill prevents teachers from teaching certain parts of American history, particularly history pertaining to oppression, to race, racism, and civil rights. Uh, the post that I saw had hundreds of thousands of likes. I saw tweets that went viral. I saw articles circulating all saying the same thing. So, if you were under that impression, I don't blame you. That is, that's, that colors most of the information that you have been seeing about this. But because I know how the media work, unfortunately, my first thought was when I saw all of this was no, no, there's no way that that's really what it is. I've seen this happen too many, too many times where the media and social media influencers run with an angle that is insufficient, incomplete at best, and completely false at worst. And then by the time anyone can issue a fact check, it's too late. The story um, is already cemented into people's heads. And no matter what I or anyone else says, that's not going to change. And that's really disappointing. Like it's really discouraging that unfortunately, it's so hard to to for the fact check to be as popular and pervasive as the false information. And that goes for anything on both sides. Um, but even if I can just get one person or help you get one person to peel back the headlines and the captions and the social media graphics and see what's actually true, I think that it's worth it. So let's first read what this bill actually says, which is always publicly available, by the way. I'll link it in the description of today's episode, but you can always search uh, Texas Bill SB3 text. Uh, I use DuckDuckGo. I've really tried to make a, um, a concentrated effort uh, to no longer say to Google something because I don't use Google and I don't really like Google. Um, 
Uh, sorry, YouTube. I didn't say that. I love, I love Google YouTube. It's great. But I just personally use DuckDuckGo. Um, or you can go to trackbill.com. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good tool to always be able to read the text of the bill so you can see for yourself what these things actually say because they're so often misconstrued. So this is a state bill passed by the state legislature in Texas. And the version of the bill that we're talking about has passed through the state Senate. Um, it passed on Friday, July 13th. And so here's the stated intent of the bill that you will see in the text of the bill itself. It says this, SB3 prohibits teachers from being compelled to discuss current events or controversial issues in public policy or social affairs, prohibits districts, charters, or teachers from requiring or granting a grade or extra credit for a student's work or service with any organization that lobbies for legislation or is involved in social or public policy advocacy or any political activism. The bill prohibits teachers, administrators, or any other other public school employee from being required to engage in training, orientation, or therapy that presents any form of race or sex stereotyping. Um, they're trying to imply like anti-racist workshops, etc. in that last line. It also says SB3 prohibits the teaching or course requirement that includes the concept of one race or sex being inherently superior to another, or that one race or sex should be held to blame for actions committed in the past by other members of that race or sex, or that traits such as hard work, uh, hard work ethic are inherently racist or sexist. This again is it's an implication of CRT. Also says SB3 adds clarifying language that the prohibition on students receiving a grade or credit for political activism does not include service in nonpartisan community-based projects or activities such as community gardens, food banks, or other philanthropic projects. So you might be thinking, none of that sounds particularly problematic. But I will say, know that the summary at the top of bills hardly ever includes like the most controversial stuff. It typically generalizes the legislation in a way that makes it sound simple and straightforward. But usually the bills are much more complex than the summary says. And so we're going to read uh, what what it actually says, what the bill says and what people uh, have contentions with. But first, I got to tell you guys about another sponsor, and that is Hunter Douglas. So you might not think too much about the blinds in your home. You just kind of adjust them when you wake up in the morning. You close them before you go to bed at night. But you might not understand how much window shades can actually do until you discover Hunter Douglas. So Hunter Douglas has unique shade designs that actually transform raw sunlight, casting a beautiful glow across the space and brightening dark corners of a room advanced fabrics that provide clear views to the outside of your home while providing daytime privacy inside. They're energy efficient. They lead the industry. They provide insulation against heat or cold for year-round comfort. They also help you save on your utility bills in that way. The best part, I think, is their PowerView automated shade technology that allows you to program your shades to move automatically throughout the day based on what you want. So maybe it's letting light slowly in as you 
wake up in the morning, uh, opening entirely for your breakfast, adjusting to block the hot midday sun or raising just in time for the perfect sunset. You can set all of that with their PowerView technology. Innovative shade designs from Hunter Douglas let you enjoy a more beautiful, comfortable, and convenient lifestyle. Just visit hunterdouglas.com slash Allie, A-L-L-I-E, hunterdouglas.com slash Allie today for your free style get smarter design guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. That's hunterdouglas.com slash Allie for your free design guide, hunterdouglas.com slash Allie. All right, so what this bill actually says, the, the summary that we read is still helpful in getting a general understanding of, of what this bill is trying to accomplish. And and we should, before we get into what the bill says, like we should note that there are some words right off the top, right off the bat, um, that are important. So in particular, quote, prohibits from being compelled or required. So that means teachers cannot be required to discuss current events or controversial issues. A district or a school administration, a school's administration, for example, cannot compel a teacher to talk about the latest case of, for example, like alleged police brutality. The teacher can talk about it, but she can't be required to talk about it. Uh, Teachers cannot be required to attend some sort of race or sex stereotype Uh, stereotyping training or therapy. So for example, a white teacher can't be compelled to go through training that then teaches her how to divest of her white privilege. A teacher cannot be compelled to undergo therapy to learn about how his masculinity is uh, contributing to patriarchal oppression, etc. So if you want to do those things, you can, but you can't be required to do those things. Um, that, that's a good that that's a good stipulation. Like that's a that's a good part of this legislation, in my opinion, a very good thing. Uh, the bill also prohibits the teaching and course requirement of racial or sex superiority, or uh, that traits such as hard work are inherently racist or sexist. This is. Unfortunately, something that we have seen, for example, from the Museum of African American History, uh, who released a public infographic, I think it was last year, saying that hard work, efficiency, timeliness, meritocracy, these are all traits of whiteness. Math programs in places like Seattle uh, link getting the right answer in math to Western whiteness. And so it's trying to emphasize not getting the right answer in math in order to make math more, quote, equitable. So Texas is saying, no, that cannot be a requirement in our public schools. And I'm pretty sure it also says that you can't, you can't teach those things. Like you can't teach that um, white kids or black kids or brown kids are inferior or superior or that men or women, boys or girls are inferior or superior. That can't be a part of your curriculum. Again, I think that's a good thing. Now, that alone is controversial for people who are sold out to critical race theory, which again, in the interest of clarity, is an academic theory, the principles of which have become very mainstream in the past few years, namely the ideas that America is and always has been systemically racist and must be revolutionized, not reformed, 
including the Constitution, are definitions of rights, of liberty, of property, etc., that white people are oppressors, whether they are actively racist or not, because they are not trying to actively tear down the racist systems in America, and black and brown people are oppressed in all manners, in all ways in the United States, even if a few happen to succeed because the institutions are all permeated with the racism on which our country was founded, CRT says, and therefore any disparity in outcome that we see between the white race and um, other races is because of racism. So those are all assertions of CRT. You might say, oh, that's not CRT. That's actually true. I'm, I promise you that I am not rep- misrepresenting what CRT is. When people try to say that I or someone else, that I don't know what CRT is, I wish that I didn't. I really do. I wish that I hadn't spent so many hours reading what critical race theorists themselves say the critical race theory is, but I have, okay? So I promise you that I am not misrepresenting. When I say the critical race theorists don't actually believe in our version, constitutional version uh, of rights, of inherent rights, for example, the right to due process. They say that the right to due process really hasn't amounted to anything good or anything beneficial for people of color. I promise you that is not a misrepresentation. That is almost a direct quote. Um, So now if you can point to me exactly to where I am misrepresenting and tell me how my description is not factual, I would love to learn and correct the record publicly. But if you just disagree with my interpretation because you don't like that representation of CRT, I can't really help you. People who believe in that theory that I just described, um, originally posited by Derek Bell and carried on today by people like Kimberly Crenshaw and in more concrete ways by Ibram X. Kendi and Nicole Hannah-Jones, even though they say they're not critical race theorists, their work is representative of it. Uh, They do believe in the necessity of using public school to teach children about the harms of whiteness, the inherent evils of every American system, the idea that America never really ended slavery, and that essentially we haven't made any real racial progress in 1619, uh, the injustice of capitalism, the unfairness of meritocracy. They believe in teaching students all of these things. They think it's true, or I don't even know if they think it's true history, but they think it's an important, necessary rendering of history that young people need to learn. These are all opinions, though, about our history. This is a way, theirs is a way to look at history through the lens of race, which is what CRT is. That's not anything close to an objective view of history. A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, as well as the 1619 Project, as well as the works of Derrick Bell, are all narrative-based. And they own up to that, by the way. They're not fact-based. They might have some facts sprinkled in, but it's a narrative-based view of history, trying to add in some events and facts to fit into that narrative and omitting other things that don't fit into the narrative. Now, you could argue that all renderings of history are subjective, but the ones I just listed, like I said, rely on secondary sources, omissions of facts that inconvenience their narrative, and a coloring of certain parts of our history to drive home this idea that America has always been a bad force for its entire history, uh, both here and abroad. 
Now, my opinion is if you want to teach about that perspective, then you can teach about that perspective, but call it a perspective. Teach it in a way that's appropriate for the students you're teaching, but say, look, here's what we know happened in our history based on these primary sources. Like these are the facts that we have based on these primary sources. Uh, Here's how some people interpret those events. Here's how other people interpret those events. Teach about the importance of primary sources, of of asking questions, of thinking critically. Like if you want to teach that the 1619 Project exists or any other journalistic project, uh, what they say about history, teach students to pick it apart, to critique it, to rebut it, or to weigh it against other artistic renderings of history. That's what the 1619 Project is, by the way. It's an artistic rendering of some things that actually happened. Um, It is admittedly not an accurate historic account, but rather a narrative about what Nicole Hannah-Jones imagines the history of the U.S. to be. If we start from the CRT premise that America was founded on white supremacy and our legacy has only been white supremacy. So uh, if you want to teach that that exists, that that perspective exists, that's one thing. To teach that perspective is absolute truth, that people must reiterate as absolute truth, the student, that students must reiterate as absolute truth in order to get a good grade, that's wrong. That's that's wrong. And it's just it's bad education because it's not true. Um, and it's harmful because it's not teaching kids to critically think. It is teaching them to accept things that A, aren't objectively true and rely on really bad scholarship. And so it's just bad all around. So back to this bill, the parts of the bill that I've already read um, are controversial to progressives for those reasons. They want to teach that stuff as fact, but there's a bigger controversy that has probably angered a lot of people who maybe don't consider themselves diehard progressives or critical race theorists. Um, And that controversy lies not so much in what the bill says, but actually in what the bill does not say. So in the House version of this bill, the Democrats had added requirements to public school curriculum that included things like um, the following, and I'm reading from the House version of this bill, quote, historical documents related to the civic accomplishments of marginalized populations, including documents related to A, the Chicano movement, B, women's suffrage and equal rights, C, the Civil Rights Movement, D, the Snyder Act of 1924, and E, the American Labor Movement, Um, the history of white supremacy, including but not limited to the institution of slavery, the eugenics movement, and the Ku Ku Klux Klan, and the ways in which it is morally wrong. The history and importance of the civil rights movement, including the following documents. A, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail and I have a dream speech, uh, among other. uh, So that's what the House Democrats all wanted to require with specificity and their House version of this bill, among some other things. So the Senate, when they got this bill, they ended up scrapping a bunch of these requirements and instead included more general requirements in the bill. Why? Because it is the State Board of Education's job, 
not the legislature's job to make specific curriculum requirements for the most part. Uh, Guy Benson reported a fact check for townhall.com, which we'll link in the description to this episode. He quotes Rich Lowry in the article, who is an editor for National Review, who said this, quote, what happened is that Democrats added a bunch of concepts and documents that school kids should know in the anti-CRT bill that passed the House a few weeks ago, so a different bill. Uh, the list was incredibly detailed and extensive when it's the role of the State Board of Education, not the legislature, to get into the weeds of the specifics of the curriculum. Besides, many of the items are already covered in the curriculum. It was widely expected that the Senate would pare down the House bill, and that's what it did, including cutting a provision citing the KKK. Benson goes on to explain in his article, quote, the law is eliminating duplicative requirements from a bill left as opposed in the first place. Lowry cites example after example of the Texas state curriculum already requiring teaching about the supposedly eliminated subjects from the KKK to MLK to women's suffrage to Cesar Chavez to Native American comp- contributions, all of which were wrongly mentioned as getting axed in the HuffPo piece quoted above. It's entirely fair to debate anti-CRT bills as they arise in legislatures across the country and overreach should be called out. But lying about what is actually being proposed discredits anti-anti-CRT progressives who also gaslight parents and citizens about CRT in general. Article goes on to say, it's not being taught in schools, they claim, clinging to a very narrow definition, helpfully undermined by America's top teachers union, of the broader term, which describes a widespread and undeniable phenomenon of radically racialized indoctrination. So that part about the teachers union that Guy Benson mentions, uh, he is referring to the largest teachers union in the country, The National Education Association explicitly stating recently that the concepts of CRT will be taught in public schools, not CRT as a theory, but the concepts of CRT as truth. Here's what Reason.com reports. At its yearly annual meeting, conducted virtually over the past few days, the NEA adopted new business item 39, which essentially calls for the organization to defend the teaching of critical race theory. It is reasonable, this is what the item says, it is reasonable and appropriate for curriculum to be informed by academic frameworks for understanding and interpreting the impact of the past on current society, including critical race theory, says the item. Consistent with its defense of CRT, the Reason.com article says, the NEA will also provide a study, quote, that critiques empire white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, racism, patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy, capitalism, capitalism, wow, ableism, anthropology anthropocentrism and other forms of power and oppression at the intersections of our society. The implication is that these critiques are aspects of critical race theory, which in a weird way makes this an example of the activist left basically accepting the activist rights new working definition of CRT as, quote, all of the various cultural insanities. So uh, that's the end of the the. Reason.com article that I just quoted. Uh, when people say CRT is not being taught in public schools, you're right in that no one is standing up and saying 
here's what critical race, here's what critical race theory is. Today, we're going to learn about it, second graders. That would actually be preferred, kind of like what I said earlier. Uh, instead, the concepts of critical race theory, which include but are not limited to what we already defined a few minutes ago, are being taught covertly. So that includes the concepts of white privilege and systemic racism and intersectionality, which, whether you agree with them or not, they are critical race theory ideas. They were invented by Derek Bell and other critical race theorists. So you might agree with those tenets of critical race theory, but to say they're not critical race theory because you like them or believe in them, uh, it's just wrong. Uh, unfortunately, how these concepts end up being crudely taught is that oh, white people in America are bad and that black and brown people don't have a fair shot. And these things just are not objectively true. They're just not. So back to this bill again and the reporting about this bill. Democrats tried to put a bunch of stuff in the bill that would uh, that teachers would be required to teach. Some things that they're already required by the state board to teach. Some things that simply don't need to be required by the state legislature to teach. Republicans took them out, not because Republicans in the state Senate took them out, not because they shouldn't necessarily be taught, but because it's not their job to dictate every detail of curriculum. They instead gave more broad prohibitions and requirements, as well as some specific course requirements like the Declaration of Independence, the Lincoln-Douglas debate, the Civil Rights Act. The bill also uh, gives guidance on teachings about things like slavery. Uh, it says that slavery, for example, should be taught, quote, with respect to their relationship to American values. Slavery and racism are anything other than deviations from uh, betrayals of or failures to live up to the authentic founding principles of the United States, which include liberty and equality. So I don't know if I paired what I said with that quote um, in a way that makes sense. So let me explain it. Uh, this is another blow to the tenets of CRT saying that you can't purposely teach kids to hate their country. You have to honestly say, that here are the values upon which we were founded, and here are the ways we didn't live up to those values um, through slavery and Jim Crow and things like that, rather than saying, oh, the founders said that we were founded on liberty and equality, and really it was just a veil for white supremacy. I'm sorry, but Frederick Douglass disagrees with you. I disagree with you, too. That would be your opinion based on an ideology, not a factual interpretation of history. So this bill that was so purposely dishonestly reported, uh, basically says, look, you cannot require teachers to teach in a way that aligns with a particular ideology or that ideology's view of American history. And teachers cannot teach that one race or sex is superior or inferior to the other. And Democrats were very clever, as I think they typically are, and this is a common tactic, uh, filling the House bill with all of these repetitive and unnecessary requirements for schools. Then when Republicans took them out, they were able to say, oh my goodness, Republicans don't want kids to learn about the KKK. They're banning talking about the history of racism. No, that's not true. And because we have such a generally unthinking populace because all of us, every single one of us suffer from confirmation bias that if we're not careful, careful about, we can very easily give in to because we have such a dishonest press. The narrative runs rampant and it's very difficult to correct it because it takes time to do. 
I saw some one of you sent me a conversation between like you and an account who shared um, misinformation about the bill that said that teachers can't talk about the KKK being wrong or can't talk about, um, you know, the bad parts about our history and racism and things like that. Uh, you messaged this person and said, look, you're spending misinformation. Here's a text to the bill. Here's what it actually does. The person replied to you and said, I really don't like reading. Can you give me a summary? Wow. If that is not representative of what I think so many, even celebrities and so-called influencers think and how they process this kind of information, whether it's about this or whether it's about Israel and Palestine, whether it's about Donald Trump, I, I don't I don't know what does. That is just that's sad. And we have a responsibility as parents, as educators, as mentors to try to equip young people to question and to think and to not just go with the mainstream, but to be like we talk about so much on this podcast, um, human salmon. Don't be afraid to swim upstream, even it's, if it's unpopular. Okay. All right. Um, I, that was me uh, mixing together. All right. And okay. I said, okay. And if you want to use it, um, you can. You don't even have to give me credit. That's for free. Okay. We are going to talk briefly about um, this whole David Platt thing. I'm just going to give like a very brief response to what David French said about the David Platt thing. But first, I'm going to tell you guys about my last spot of the day and that is good ranchers my husband and i love our good ranchers meat it just makes our life so much easier and it's super affordable if you go to goodranchers.com slash alley you pick out the meat that you want they individually package the meat that you want and they send it in a box on your front door it's cold ready to go you can either throw it in the freezer which is what we do or if you're ready to cook it that night it's ready to grill you can get pre-marinated chicken really easy what we love about it also is that all of the meat is from American farms. And so 80% of the grass-fed beef that you're getting from the grocery store is actually imported from overseas. If you want to support American farmers, which is super especially important right now, then you need to use Good Ranchers. Um, it's not just from American farms, but it's also uh, ethically raised. It's better than organic. It's American craft beef. And so it's convenient. It's affordable. It's great quality. The people at Good Ranchers travel the country meeting with the farmers that they work with. And so they can guarantee the quality um, of your meat. And I could not recommend them enough. If you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie and you go ahead and subscribe, you save a lot of money. You can check out the Family Feast bundle, which includes steak and chicken. Um, and if you do subscribe, you get $20 off and free express shipping. So $20 off free express shipping. That's a really good deal. So go to goodranchers.com slash Allie, A-L-L-I-E. I have to always spell that because some of you guys still spell my name A-L-L-Y. It's fine. I just want you to get the deal. Goodranchers.com slash Allie to get $20 off and free express shipping. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie for $20 off and free express shipping. Goodranchers.com slash Allie. All right. So David Platt has actually been in the center of some drama over the past few years. There have been some accusations from people within his church and just people within evangelicalism who have called him woke, uh, who have said that, you know, he is moving to the left when it comes to racial issues. Um, David Platt is an amazing pastor, an amazing preacher, an amazing 
author. I mean, most people I know who were raised evangelical read Radical, and it really changed your perspective of just like comfort and convenience and what we're actually called to as Christians. I have absolutely no doubt, at least from what I see, I have no doubt about the sincerity of David Platt and how much he loves Jesus. Do I agree with everything that he has said about race and racism? No, I don't. I really appreciated a couple years ago when he put his hand on Donald Trump's shoulder and he prayed for Donald Trump. That got him in some hot water with some people, apparently some people in his own congregation. And I said at the time, because David Platt released a statement afterwards, not necessarily apologizing, but trying to kind of explain it to his congregants. That was the mistake that I personally believe that he made, that you shouldn't even have to explain that. You prayed for a president. Not I, can, I, I can't guarantee that David Platt didn't vote for President Trump, but he obviously hasn't been some outspoken supporter of President Trump. So he prayed for him in a nonpartisan way, in a way that Republican or Democrat were supposed to be praying for our leaders as Christians. Um, and so I didn't think that he needed to explain that at all. And he has... He, he has kind of given credence to some of the uh, some of the assertions, some of the arguments of organizations like Black Lives Matter. Like he has talked about things like structural racism, racism and systemic racism. So he is uh, he said this before. He said, a disparity exists. We can't deny this. These are not opinions. They're facts. It matters in our country whether one is white or black. Now, we don't want it to matter, which is why I think we try to convince ourselves it doesn't matter. We think to ourselves, I don't hold prejudices towards black or white people, so racism is not my problem. But this is where we need to see that racialization is our problem. It's all of our problem. We subtly, almost unknowingly contribute to it. So that is, that is, and I don't... People get so mad like when people say this because they think it's like this boogeyman and they think that you're just um, you're accusing anyone who talks about race or racism of being a Marxist, of being a critical race theorist. And I think that's wrong. Like we should not do this. But this comment is critical race theory. Now, whether David Platt has ever read Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw or um, or Derek Bell, I highly doubt. I highly doubt he has. I do not think that David Platt subscribes to all of critical race theory. I do not think that David Platt is a Marxist. I don't think that he is a communist. I don't think that he agrees with probably most of the tenets of the Black Lives Matter organization. I don't think that. I'm not calling him a false teacher. I'm not saying he's not a real Christian. But this is an argument that is that was founded by critical race theorists. It just is this idea that whether you are racist or not, that we live in a racist a racist system that is the cause for the disparities that we see between white Americans and black Americans and that today in 2021 that you are discriminated against or you are oppressed uh, because of the color of your skin, because of these racist systems that exist, that is critical race theory. And that is highly debatable. It's highly debatable. Now, I've talked about so many times before uh, the book Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell. And the reason I talk about it is because just the title, or not really the title, but like the introduction alone 
it, it blows apart this fallacy that I see so many well-meaning people give into, which is this idea that if you see a disparity between white Americans and black Americans, it is a given that that is because of systemic racism and that's because of discrimination when really, typically, maybe sometimes it is because of some like uh, antiquated racist structure or the so-called legacy of racism or slavery, maybe, but so often it's so much more complex than that. And that's what Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell lays out so perfectly that this this assertion of the history of systemic racism and structural racism and the legacy of the unbroken legacy and threat of, of slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration is the cause for all the disparities between white and black Americans. He really busts that apart by actually looking at the facts and looking at the history and looking at the data that contradicts that. And so, yes, David Platt, whether he realizes it or not, and I'm sh- absolutely sure he is completely well-meaning in this and that he wants to seek biblical justice. But yes, this comment absolutely speaks to a tenet of critical race theory that is debatable at best when you actually look at the data. I am not denying that racism exists. I am not denying that racism at one point in our history was systemic. I am not denying that there could be impacts of previous slavery on today in a way that uh, some people that some people don't experience and other people do experience. So I'm not denying that. I am not saying that talking about race or racism is wrong. I'm not saying that talking about um, injustice against a particular group is wrong. I'm not saying that that's Marxist. I'm just saying what he says is not necessarily supported by the data that we've talked about so many times on this podcast and is rather a narrative-based assertion that was created by people like Derek Bell. So whether you agree with it or not, that that is where it comes from. That's where it comes from. And you can say all day long, I don't agree with critical race theory. Well, you just asserted the maintenance of critical race theory. Just accept that for what it is. Now, I don't necessarily agree with, although, again, I don't know all of the details of this, so I'm not going to get too into it. But from what I'm reading, I don't necessarily agree with how the people within David Platt's church are pushing back against this. So this is what Religion News reports. On July 15th, five members of McLean Bible Church, that's David Platt's church, filed a complaint alleging that Platt and other leaders illegally barred them from voting at a recent congregational meeting to approve new church leaders. The plaintiffs also claim a follow-up election at the church this weekend violated the church's constitution. This is a breach of contract action seeking to remedy defendants' illegal actions to deny plaintiffs their rights to cast a free and fair vote, to uh, have those votes lawfully counted, and to enjoy their right to a secret ballot, uh, according to the complaint. And apparently, this vote um, has to do with these issues surrounding the political ideological direction of Platt and McLean uh, Bible Church. Now, Platt has accused his critics in a sermon of spreading disinformation, stuffing the ballot box with votes from former members and inactive church members. I don't know if that's true. If that is true, then it's absolutely a sin. I also think it's weird to uh, involve civil authorities in this. Now, again, there could be details about this that just sounds that sounds purposely contentious um, and maybe not the most Christ-like way 
to handle this. I'm open to hearing feedback on that. Um, and I do think if Platt's accusations of his critics are true, then obviously that is sinful to try to subvert a legitimate process in a way that is dishonest. So David Platt said in a sermon, I want you to listen closely to the words I'm about to say. A small group of people inside and outside this church coordinated a divisive effort to use this information in order to persuade others to vote these men down as part of a broader effort to take control of this church. Um, so three new elders were approved by their vote by 80% of the active member vote. There's still a dispute about who is an inactive member. A longtime member, Bill Frazier, believes church leaders disqualified people who they thought would vote the wrong way. So that's where part of this drama, that that's, that's part of how this is happening. So like one side thinks that the vote was illegitimate because um, of the definition of inactive members. I would say David Platt's side thinks that the other side is saying that illegitimate members are illegitimate. Both sides, I guess, think that they're trying to take over the church leadership and take it in a direction that they don't agree with uh, because of the nature of a lawsuit. Unfortunately, we cannot provide any further comment at this time. The elders said in a statement, we praise God for our church family's affirmation of new elders, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers for all of McLean Bible Church as we move forward in our mission. So there is obviously um, division going on within that church. That should never be anything that we rejoice over. Like we don't revel in this kind of uh, drama. We don't want this. Like no matter what side of the argument that you're on, we want unity in Christ and unity in the gospel. I'm sure that's what David Platt uh, wants as much as I might disagree with some comments that he has made. And I don't know, no one knows except for the people there, all of the details of everything um, that has gone on. Like my prayer is for unity for them. Uh, but I want to explain a little bit more using David French's response to all of this, why I disagree with that comment that I read from David Platt and some other things that he has said. And again, this is not an endorsement of the people within his church doing what they're doing to try to kind of oppose him because I just don't know. I'm not picking a side um, I'm not picking a sign on that, but as far as the subject matter goes, let me read you a little bit about what David French said and then why I disagree. So um, he explains kind of what happened. Uh, then he says the congregants, uh, this is in David French's um, like own blog. He says the congregants objects to what they perceive as a pastoral embrace of critical race theory. And they assert the Bible alone contains teaching sufficient to address America's race problems. You can read the comprehensive complaint against Platt and his team here. And so I can uh, link that so you can read it. And the allegations of teaching are advocating CRT here without restating all the contents of these link lengthy documents. David French says they include complaints that Platt and his NBC, his NBC colleague, Pastor Mike Kelsey, marched in the Christian Black Lives Matter march, and that Kelsey has endorsed the CRT concepts of systemic racism and white privilege. Uh, they also condemn Platt uh, for arguing that the absence of overt prejudice does not absolve one of the problems of racism and racialization, and includes that quote that I read earlier. Um, so then David French gives his, um, his response or his interpretation of all of this according to scripture. And then I responded on Twitter. He has not responded to me. I don't know if he will. So I feel comfortable talking about it here since I've already tried to, uh, uh, engage with him individually. 
Then David French responds to this whole thing. He says, Platt is biblically and historically right. It's his detractors who are biblically and historically wrong. Uh, He says that the conservatives, he puts in scare quotes, have placed a secular political frame around an issue with profound religious significance. Um, And then he says, uh, to understand the flaw in their argument, he's talking about Platt's dissenters. Let's first turn to the biblical text. He cites 2 Samuel 21, during the king, uh, the reign of King David, Israel was afflicted with three years of famine. When David sought the face of the Lord regarding the crisis, God said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Uh, Saul was king before David and God was punishing Israel years after Saul's regime because of Saul's sin. It was the next king, David's responsibility to make things right. Um, And then he gives some other examples of this, of Israel committing sins in the past. And then having to, um, the next generations having to seek God's forgiveness about these sins. Um, and so David Pla- or, uh, David French goes on to say, uh, let's go back to scripture and recognize that the obligation to act justly is intergenerational. If there is injustice that predates our personal power, it is still our obligation to do what we can to set it right. When you see racist structures at work, you recognize that you need sociology, history, and economics to help you understand uh, not just their reality, but their remedy. He goes on to argue that sola scriptura is not going to inform policy and that we have common grace to be able to draw from different sources of wisdom to tell us um to tell us, you know, how to enact certain policy in a way that is just. So even though the Bible informs our definitions of justice, when it comes to specific policy, we do look to different sources of wisdom and advice. And of course, I believe that. I think that is absolutely true. That's why I uh, quote Thomas Sowell, even though he's not necessarily um, a, a Christian author. I don't know his faith, but he's not writing from a Christian perspective. Um, And then he goes on to talk about the different kind of racist structures that he believes have caused these disparities. He talks about the median income of uh, black Americans being a great deal lower than the median income of white Americans. And he talks about that that is because of these racist structures that are in place. So here is my response to that. And then we'll close this out. And this is what I said on Twitter. I'm just going to read what I said on Twitter. So I say, you make a lot of good points here. By the way, David French, I do believe that you do. And I can't speak to the plot situation. This is what I said last night. I know a lot more about the plot situation than I did then. Um, But a few ways I'd push back on what you write here. One, disparities don't equal discrimination. They don't automatically equal discrimination. Because if they do, then we have to ask, is discrimination also to blame for an Asian median income that is a lot higher than white's median income? And the article, David French only compares white versus black income and conclude that it's because of automatically, exclusively past structural racism. And maybe it is. Like, I'm not discounting that it could be or partly is. But the reality is, is that it's much more complex than that. The second point I would make, America is not Israel. Now, I see a lot of right-wingers, like uh, super pro-Trump people, compare um, Israel to the United States in trying to say that America is God's chosen nation today. And they use scripture from the past, they decontextualize it, they apply it to America to try to say, you know, America is today's Israel. And they're accused of Christian nationalism for doing that. And I happen to agree that that's theologically flawed, that America is 
not modern day Israel. It's not God's chosen country. But I see the same moderates and leftists like Dave, like David French. I'm not saying that he is a leftist, but like David French say uh, that uh, these people are Christian nationalists, that it's wrong to that it's wrong to assert that that it's wrong to call America God's chosen nation. But then they go on to do the same thing. They go on to compare America to Israel when they're talking about it in a more negative sense when they're or when they're trying to support their argument that um, that we have a call to modern repentance for past sins. And so either America is Israel or it's not. Either that's Christian nationalism or it's not. I do believe that we can draw from the principles of justice giving and the implementation of justice in the Old Testament in the United States and use that as inspiration for justice. And I mean, that's what our laws are. Um, I do believe that, but we cannot say, okay, this happened in Israel. That means that's what has to happen in America. And that's what David French does here. He uses examples of Israelites asking for mercy for their ancestors' sins. But the problem is, besides the fact that we're not ancient Israel, number one, they were, David, for example, and there are other examples of this too, like Daniel, um, they're talking about their actual ancestors, actual ancestors, not just people who lived in the same place uh, as them at one point. Like we all talk about like, oh, our ancestors had slaves. If you're just a white person, actually, probably not. Like it was a very, very small percentage of the South that actually ever owned slaves. And so for every white person in America to say your ancestors owned slave just because you're a white person in America is probably not historically accurate. That's not what was happening in the Bible. So when David is asking for or like seeking mercy from the consequences of old sin, um, he is not talking about just some people who shared his skin color. He's not talking about um, people who lived in the same geographical region that he did or even in the same nation that he did. He, like, he is talking about his actual bloodline. Like He's talking about his actual ancestors who committed the sins. And then the second thing I would say is that the sins, I believe, in these cases, were still active. And the Bible was also very clear that God um, is not holding us responsible for the sins of our actual ancestors, but that doesn't mean that we don't suffer consequences of the sins of our ancestors or even a, of our nation's history. And that is what David is asking reprieve from. So while I agree with the obligation of a nation to right past wrongs, I, one, don't see biblical support for melanin-based repentance. Um, and two, I don't think that equal outcomes, so the elimination of all disparities equals justice. And I don't think that David French does either, but that is what the disparities equals discrimination argument implies. CRT's premise that America has always been systemically racist asserts that modern disparities between white and black Americans uh, exist because of the structures in place. And while that may be true in some cases, it is not a given without some critical thinking and some looking at data. Um, and then I encourage him to read Soul's Discrimination and Disparities if he has not. So that's kind of my take on that whole situation. And we just have to, I, I do think we have to be so careful not to call everyone a Marxist or a critical race theorist who talks about racism or disparities or problems or who poses solutions to the disparities that we see. Um, and 
we shouldn't do that because that gets in the way of productive conversations, but so does critical race theory. So does assuming that every disparity is because of racism. That um, makes it really hard for us to look at real solutions that might not have anything to do with race. It could be a class issue. It could be uh, an individual choice issue. It could be a welfare issue. Um, It could be a family unit issue. There are all different types of problems that are pushed off to the side when we only see disparities and issues that we have in this country as racial issues. That is the problem with CRT that I've heard, I think, James Lindsay say, is that its compassion is way too narrow and it doesn't allow us to see other problems that exist. And it also doesn't prescribe actually biblical and biblically just solutions. And I just think that we have to be careful in our exegesis and uh, we have to be careful in our interpretation of scripture um, to make sure that we are applying the principles of justice without uh, without superimposing what was exclusive to Israel on today and in so doing, get a wrong interpretation and a wrong application of what the Bible says. And we all, we all need help in doing that. And so we approach scripture uh, with humility and asking God for wisdom in trying to approach all these issues. All right, that's all I've got time for today. I will see you back here tomorrow.